Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12. As you're turning there, the children can be dismissed. They will head upstairs for kids for missions. Once a month, we gather our children together and they learn about a country or a people group and how God is working there to declare his glory through the ministries of people. We are in Hebrews chapter 12. That's page 1008 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. We're going to begin in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the word of the Lord. Again, let me remind you of the situation in uh, in the church that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. It was a church that found itself um, discouraged. I mean, they they were discouraged because of the long haul of what they had endured. They were fearful, and one of the things that it says in the scriptures, because they were fearful, they had stopped assembling together. They'd quit coming together as a church. And the writer of Hebrews is painstakingly writing to them, telling them that all of the promises are yes in Christ. What's happening is this group of Jewish converts were now having second thoughts about Jesus being the fulfillment of all that the Scriptures taught. And they were thinking about going back to their Jew. Uh, to their Judaism and their roots in Judaism. And he's writing to them saying, stand firm, don't back up, don't go back. There's no place else to go. And what he does now in this text as we come to chapter 12 is he gives them some motivations so as not to turn back. Really one of those motivations he has been laying the groundwork for in chapter 11. But the first one we talked briefly about last week, that you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, surrounded by people, all of those people of chapter 11. These, remember, were Jewish converts, so they knew well the patriarchs. And as he goes through chapter 11, he lays out the life of the patriarchs. And one of the points he is making, and you can go to previous messages and we've attempted to make this connection directly, is he's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this, the promise that those patriarchs like Abel and Abraham and Noah and Moses, the promise they were looking to is Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't know that it was Jesus Christ in the sense of those words, but they were looking to a promise. And he's saying to them, the promise is Jesus. If you go away from that, if you go away from Christ, you are not in the line of the patriarchs. You see, they were being tempted to go back, but they couldn't go back. The writer was admonishing them not to go back. You can't back up. All that they were hoping for found its culmination in Jesus Christ. This morning in my Sunday school class, 
we had that reiterated to us in a couple of different ways by the, the teacher on the screen. And one of the scriptures he used is in the New Testament where they're, they're looking to understand who Jesus says. And Jesus says, all of the scriptures point to me. That was Jesus' words. All of the scriptures point to me. Old Testament, New Testament, all together, one story that finds its culmination in Christ. On the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus was walking with those around him, and for a long time they didn't recognize who he was, and what he was doing is he was just going back and recounting the Old Testament scriptures, probably the story of the patriarchs, much like chapter 11. Again, I said to my class this morning, if there's one thing I would like to have from the lips of Jesus specifically, it would have been the manuscript of that conversation because as they walked with him, they didn't recognize it was Jesus until they came and broke bread. And as Jesus broke bread, they recognized him and they understood that all of the scriptures pointed to him. All of the promises, if you will. You see, those Old Testament patriarchs were trusting the promises of God. Now, the scripture says to us, this is the motivation. Two motivations are given in this text. To you, to you who are hearing it now, and also to those who were hearing it at the first, in the first sense, in the first generation. But we're hearing two motivations, and the first one is, since we are surrounded by so a great cloud of witnesses, stand firm. Don't back up. Run. Run with perseverance the race you have set on it. Don't slow down. Don't meander. Run. Now, last week, we made the point, and I think it's a good point to make. I think it it helps with this text. At least it helps me to understand that many believe that what he's talking about when he says surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses is not the kind of thing that we're in the middle of a coliseum and all of these witnesses are around us looking down on us. Not witnesses in the sense that they're up in the stands looking at us, that their lives don't witness to us in the sense that they're watching us, but they witness to us in the sense that their lives say something to us. In other words, as we look at their lives, they speak something to us. They speak about faithfulness. They speak about staying true. They speak about running the race with perseverance. It's interesting, and you, you must see it in the middle of chapter 11. All of those people of chapter 11, all of those Old Testament saints, chapter 11 and verse 13 sums it up. It says, they all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Why is that inserted there? It's because he's making the point to these now, understand the context, he's making the point to these people who had come out of Judaism that those patriarchs did not receive the promise. That promise is fulfilled in Christ. And if you go back on Christ, you won't get the promise. You see, they were waiting. It hadn't been, it hadn't been totally delivered to them. They died in faith, still believing the promise, which centers in Christ. 
man, it's important for us, I think, to look to witnesses, to look to that crowd of witnesses, to look to Old Testament personalities. One of the things that strengthens my faith as much as anything is when I see the, the unity of Scripture, the way that this book is one message, and that message centers in Christ. We have talked about that through this series. You can go back and listen to those messages. And I tried to, to make that connection and make that parallel for you. But there's also another dimension, I think, in which witnesses cheer us on and encourage us by their lives. A level at which I want to make application to us specifically here. Certainly we look to patriarchs, and we should be cheered on by the fact that they held true to the promise, and we see that promise is Christ. But there's another level this morning, and another way in which I think we see the power of witnesses in a local body, in a local church, if you will, in this local church of Richland. One of the benefits of serving now 35-plus years here in one place, God was gracious to, to allow me to do that, is to I get a vantage point to watch things over the long haul. I've had that vantage point. The, and one of the things that I have, have observed in that is the power of cross-generational life together in a church. Um, I don't want to get on a soapbox, and I'm grateful that I don't have to deal with this pressure. I hope if I had this pressure in another place, in another setting, that I would be as, as uh, convictional about what I think as I can say to you, because I haven't had to do it. But one of the things that we have not had to do at Richland, in fact, one of the things we've, we, we have been blessed to not have to do is is segregate our congregation. Now, certainly, I don't. we think of segregation in lots of different ways, but the segregation I'm talking about is the segregation of age demographics. One of the things that the church would say that segregation is wrong on all levels, and yet oftentimes, I think, is blind to a segregation that's happening right underneath us, all around. And that is that when you go to various churches on Sunday mornings, you will find that in many cases partly because churches are able to do multiple services and multiple styles of ministry, multiple styles of worship. What that, what that in essence does in many places is it segregates congregations. And it segregates congregations by age demographics normally. There'll be some crossover, but not a lot. And so the cross-pollination of generations gets lost in larger settings and in settings that have more than one service. And I'm grateful that that has not happened here. And the vantage point of being able to watch that over the long haul has been good for me to be able to do that. Let me, let me recount it a bit. Um, I have been able, in the time that I've been here, to, to observe a cloud of witnesses. Not Old Testament witnesses, but New Testament witnesses. Contemporary witnesses, if you will, in that 35-year period of time. Witnesses that have been in this church and some continue to be in this church. Witnesses who speak by their lives an encouragement to me to keep on keeping on, to continue to exercise faith and trust and rest in my God. There's really been two generations ahead of me that I've observed in those 35 years. The first generation my grandfather's generation 
for the most part, is not here anymore. They're gone. They were here when I came, and I watched them, and I was a witness to observe their lives and watch their lives and allow their lives to cross with my life and their graciousness to be felt and their faith to be seen and to be observed. Um, There are many places where I observed it, and one of the things about that generation is they, they could have quit many times. The other dynamic of us here is we are located in a locality of which no one, no one would have faulted any of that generation if they would have said at certain times along the way that it would be better for us to pack up and move to town. They would have not thought much about that. It, it would have been okay. It would have been understandable. There was a time and a place when churches like this popped up, and because of the fact that we couldn't travel very far, it made sense to put them here. In fact, the people who first came to this church, some of them came to this church in buggies and to keep warm in the wintertime, and yes, they did come in the wintertime. They put rocks in the bottom of those buggies and came to church. And it made sense to be closer. It made sense to have a church here in the midst and there were many more people who populated the area. And so it just made sense to do that. But there came a time when transportation wasn't a problem and it wouldn't have been any harder really to go a little bit farther to town and to worship there. But I watched that generation and have heard of that generation. In 1958, I wasn't here yet, but in 1958 was one of those times 58, 59, the late 50s, when, when the first sanctuary had, had outlived its purposes and its, um, its ability to serve the church and, and a new sanctuary needed to be built. That would have been a time when they could have said, we can't do that. But they didn't do that. There were some in the, in the congregation that said, we're, we're going to build a new sanctuary. We're going to keep the doors open of the church and they had prayed that that would be the case and the church would continue to be fruitful and have ministry. And so in the late 1950s, they constructed what is now the youth center that set as a standalone building over there. That was the second sanctuary. The first one was torn down and later built a fellowship hall with wood from that. But they could have said stop, but they didn't. In the early 80s when I came, I was a, a young pastor. That would have been another time when, when the church could have said no. They could have said, um, we're just, we just can't do that. I mean, times have changed. But in the early 80s, as, as we decided as a church body and leadership to, to try to ramp up our ability to minister to youth and children and to begin actually... To, to transport them in. That's when it started in the early 80s. People started doing it in their cars. We moved our, our ministry on Wednesday nights or on Sunday nights to Wednesday night where children and youth and we started to transport people. We came to the realization if, if we were going to do ministry like that, we would have to bring them, we'd have to transport them and so that has grown through the years. But again, because we were transporting them in, we were out of space. We were out of room. There wasn't places to put them and so proposed was a number of things, but finally it was settled on the addition that, that connected that sanctuary to the fellowship hall that had been constructed, that two-story addition in the middle and one story up on top. And again, it would have been a time when that generation could have said no and, and really not been faulted for that. 
Times had changed. Um, but they didn't. They didn't say no. In fact, I remember many of those guys and, and women who, who worked alongside them who, who were here building and working and constructing and all of those kinds of things. Some of those, that generation were the ones, the first to come and the last to leave as that was constructed, as that was built. 20 years ago or so, um, another kind of fork in the road came and uh, many of those people who, who I'm talking about or some of those people had passed away by now. Some of that, my grandfather's generation had passed away, but there were still some here and I remember one of them on the church leadership at that time when we talked about hiring and adding staff. I remember the greatest proponent, the one that was the most vocal to do that, was of that generation. The one who could have been silent and let others speak drove that and caused that to come to fruition, I think. God used him to encourage others to continue to be faithful. And so... Pastor Jason came 20 years ago and added staff. And that generation was, was, was made that way. They, they were people of faith. And you can look to them. They were witnesses to look to. And their faith and their trust in God um, was encouraging to me. Then, then there's also another generation. It would not be my grandfather's generation, but today, my father's generation who is here. Um, they are still here for the most part, my father's generation. And one of the things about them is they continue to be involved in ministry to to the extent of their ability to be involved in that. You know that. You watch them if you are here. You see some of them involved directly in ministry. Some, because of physical limitations, have had to back out in some places, but not all. But they continue to continue to witness to us, to speak to us. It's a wonderful thing to be able to be surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses in these 35 years. People who, uh, who allowed us to change through the years, who, who, who allowed to not always have it be about their comfort and, and the way they would most prefer it. And we've had to do it together. We've had to do this together. We couldn't, we couldn't have two different worship services or, or divide by age demographics. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for a people who are willing to do that. Grateful for those generations who have been willing to do that. But they would say to me, in fact, the ones that are here today would be somewhat uncomfortable with what I'm talking about because they would also say to us, and again, this is a witness to us as well, they would say we're not perfect people, and they're not, but neither are you or I of other generations. None of us are perfect. And the other way they witness to us, not only in the ways that I've talked about specifically, but other ways they witness to us is that they did the second thing that this text tells us to do. It says, therefore, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, look to the witnesses, be encouraged by that, be strengthened by that, let them cheer you on by their lives. They also... Not only were people of faith, but they also were people who knew deeply their need of a Savior, who kept the gospel the main thing here at the church. 
Look at the text with me. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the emphasis, look to those witnesses. But then it goes on to say, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. That's the second means. The second means that he's trying to encourage these Hebrew people with. Look to Jesus. And one of the things, as I look at that grandfather generation and father generation is they have continued to look to Jesus. They have looked to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He is central. Many churches that go on for a while lose the center. You've witnessed churches that that's happened in and and they didn't ever lose the center. They never lost Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. If it gets to be about something other than him, the church would not continue to exist. But it does because they look to him. And, and as they look to him, I want to, I want to look now as we come to the table. What, what does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the founder and perfecter of our faith? There are three things quickly and then we're going to come to the table. Three things that those generations knew and that we who come along behind them need to continue in. First of all, as founder or author, other translations may say, and perfecter of our faith, first of all, he's the foundation of our faith. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. It is is the platform on which all of it flows out of it. All the things that were done here flow out of him being the foundation. He's also the foundation that is why that death was so successful. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself will likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Christians are the offspring of Abraham. Remember that message? How how can you be, in one sense, Jewish? All Christians are, in one sense, Jewish, just like those Hebrew believers because of this. The promise came to Abraham, remember? The promise that he would have a son, and in his son would come the king, of Israel, David. And in David's line would come Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are in Abraham, and all of the promises are yours. You see, that message is there too in all of Hebrews. Jesus came to taste death as a man so that he could be in the line of Abraham, but he's not like the first man Adam, who failed, but he's the second Adam who succeeded, who lived perfectly. And if you are in him, you are in Abraham, and all the promises are yours because he did perfectly what Adam failed to do. And our hope is him. Our hope is that he did taste death. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith but the founder of our faith. Secondly, they knew that he was the perfect model of faith. He's the foundation, yes. He is the reason for everything. 
for these, for these Hebrew believers to cast off Christ was foolish. They were casting off the foundation. You don't have a faith without him. But he also was the perfect model of that faith. Not only is he the founder of it by his death, and if we're in him, we have all the promises, but he's the perfecter of our faith. He, he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. He was a perfect model of what we're to emulate. He's a, he's a perfect witness, if you will, that we should look to because he did what we were, what we're called to do in every instance. He perfectly obeyed the Father. We've, we've talked about this at other times, but the Trinity is an amazing thing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus became a man. He left that Trinitarian unity of the Godhead, and he came as a man. And the amazing thing is he came as a man, though equal with God, He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. That's what the scripture says. But he became a man because it was going to take a man to die for us. A man first to live for us perfectly, but then to die for us. And how did he live perfectly? He lived perfectly because he perfectly obeyed the Father. He perfectly obeyed the Father. Whatever he heard the Father saying, he did perfectly obeyed the Father. If Adam, if the first Adam would have obeyed, he'd have been confirmed in righteousness, but because he sinned, he wasn't. But the second Adam, Christ, perfectly obeyed the Father. And though we won't talk a lot about this, I believe he did it the same way we're to do it, by the power of the third person of the Trinity within. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit within him. As, as we're to live out. When we become a Christian, when we're in Christ, we come to life in Christ. And what is the definition of life in Christ? But the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we are to live by the Spirit. Jesus lived in submission to the Father and obedience to the Father by the power of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, in his humanity. Exactly like we're to do it. Exactly model of how we're to live out our life with Christ. And then finally, he's the finisher of that faith. He's the founder and the finisher. They knew he was the finisher. And I hope you know that this morning. I hope that you understand that the sustainer of your faith, the begin, the one who begins it and the one who sustains it is Jesus. And as you come to the table, that's just what you're relying upon. You're remembering what Christ has done. He began it, he laid the foundation, and he will finish it. He who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion at the day of Christ. If he's begun it, he will finish it in you. He will be successful. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20 says. And as we look at this point, it says, this is, this is the writer now writing a benediction after he's written all that he's written in Hebrews. And he says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good, everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
May that God work in you. That was the hope of the writer of the Hebrews. That God, if God had begun a work, he was going to finish that work. That if God had begun a work, they weren't going to go back to to their old Judaistic ways. God wouldn't allow them to do that. They would continue to be true. They would continue to hold to Christ and they would run. They would run with perseverance the race that God had begun in them. That's the hope of the believer, that he who has begun a work will bring it to completion. That was the hope of the writer of Hebrews, that the words that he was writing about running with perseverance would quicken hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, would use it in the lives of those who were beginning to teeter to hold them and to keep them true and to keep them running. So this morning, we're going to come to the table. And the question that I want to ask is of our generations. Now, if you're of the first two, you can, you in one sense can turn it off now. I'm talking to the generations, my generation and the generations behind me. Will we be a part of those cloud of witnesses who cheer on the generations behind us because we continue to be people who rest in all that this table represents to us? In the author and perfecter of our faith, it's the foundation of everything, trusting the promises of God. I hope so. I hope that we will be that. I hope we will look to Jesus the founder and finisher of our faith. It says something else in there that I want to to mention here before we come to the table. It has another admonition. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. But it says, Let us do something. Lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely to us. How do we do that? I think we do it by looking to Jesus. We look to him. Last week, if you remember in in the prayer time, I made a statement which I think is true. The only sin that you can successfully defeat in your life is a forgiven sin. He said, take off the weight come against the sin that comes against you. How do you do it? By looking to the promise, by looking to what Christ has done, by, by knowing that because of all this represents, the sin that you are fighting is already forgiven. Christ has already taken the punishment. He has already endured the wrath for that sin. I pray that will give you hope this morning as we come to the table. I pray that you will come Ask God to renew your faith, strengthen your faith, cause you, if you're not, to run, to run with endurance the race set out before you. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we come to this table. Help us, first of all, to examine our lives and and, uh, ask the question, are we running? Are we running in a way that will cause generations behind us to to be encouraged to look to our example look to our witnesses witness and be strengthened by it as they come along to run their race father i pray that that you will help us as a church body 
Help us to continue, Father, to, to minister in these communities. Help us, Father, to continue to trust you. Trust you to help us to plant the gospel in the lives of people. That we might see that gospel take root and cause them to run, Father. Lord, we're grateful for those that have gone before us. We're grateful for the heritage that we have. And I pray that we will walk with them. But we will do it on the foundation of what this table represents to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion this morning. And if you're visiting, as I've already said, we have open communion. And you're welcome to take this if you are living under the gracious reign of our God and putting your hope in Christ. We'll distribute the elements and you can hold them, pray over them, and we'll take them together this morning. The elders this morning will help us disperse the elements. This is the body of Christ. Jesus said, take this in remembrance of me, in remembrance that I'm the author, the finisher, founder and the finisher of your faith.
Jesus didn't give a lot of instructions about worship, corporate worship. But this is one he did give us to say, do this in remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me, the author, the founder, perfecter of your faith. Take and eat and be grateful. Represents the blood of Christ to us.
Christian life is uh, not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's uh, described as run with endurance. It's an endurance race. And how deeply we ought to be grateful for those who are around us and encourage us and cheer us on because they have done what we are doing now again and again. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. May we look to Christ. May what we do here cheer other generations on behind us. Drink and be grateful. There's a hymn that we've been singing together that fits this series. We're going to sing by faith. Let's stand together. By faith we see the hand of God and the light of creation's grand design. Fathers from the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the to run with perseverance this race looking to your son continually father in Jesus name amen dismissed